All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. It's time once again for Money Talks, our program here on KFES Digital, all about your economic news analysis, all of that good information. And we have with us David Yaskevich. He is with uh, Southeast Missouri State University, and he is the chair of the Department of Accounting, Economics, and Finance. Uh, David, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Clayton. Absolutely. We are glad to have you here glad to uh, to dive into um, yeah like like we were saying beforehand a little bit of a retrospective on this week in uh, in all, all things money all of the the latest news happening in the world of money and um, with that there has been uh, you know Jerome Powell we've been we've been following what he's been saying as we monitor levels of inflation um, as we monitor um, what the Fed is doing with uh, the the current inflation situation, um, and so he was he was giving testimony again this week, uh, talking about it being a long road ahead. Basically, can you tell us more about what uh, what Chairman Powell said and and what it means? Sure. One of the main takeaways from his two-day testimony to Congress this week would reflect something that was reported on last week when the Federal Open Market Committee had its two-day meeting. And something we talked about last week on Money Talks would be the likelihood that we will see additional interest rate increases by the Federal Open Market Committee before the end of this year. So if you looked at the projections that FOMC members presented at the last meeting, which was last week, most of them were projecting at least two more rate hikes by the end of the year. And the comments made by Jerome Powell in the congressional testimony made that clear. It was quite explicit that we should expect more interest rate hikes in the federal fund rate before the end of the year, quite possibly at its next meeting. So just a little background, the testimony that that was presented to Congress this week uh, is required by federal law. There's the Humphrey Hawkins Act of 1978, which requires a uh, semi-annual monetary report to Congress. And by semi-annual, it would be twice a year, once in either February or March, and then a second report in either June or July. So this was the second report of the year. There's a formal document, roughly 70 to 80 pages, posted on the Federal Reserve website, and the testimony reflects what that report would have. And in addition to the testimony that uh, Chairman Powell would give, there's also a rather lengthy question and answer session where representatives in Congress would ask questions about monetary policy, the banking system, and economic conditions. So uh, quite a lot to watch this week if you were watching C-SPAN or, or read about, if you were reading the, the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or Reuters news, uh, but um, quite a lot. Now, not, not many surprises. Uh, the testimony would involve a general assessment of economic conditions. So uh, basically what was reported is that inflation remains high. Uh, but there have been considerable declines in the inflation rate over the last year. The labor market remains tight, meaning you have a lot of job openings relative to those who are unemployed, but there's been some loosening a bit, although the conditions remain tight. And if you were to look at economic growth projections for this year, economic growth is continuing, but it looks like it'll be at a slower pace. There are concerns about the banking system. There were the three bank closures this year, which included Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic. 
bank. It doesn't look like it's spreading to other banks in terms of the likelihood of closure, but there could be tightening in credit conditions that we're seeing along with higher interest rates. And all of those were included in the discussion that uh, was included in the testimony. So not much new, but I would really emphasize the main takeaway would be the acknowledgement that we're seeing uh, a likelihood that we'll, there, there'd be one or two more interest rate hikes, probably two, uh, before the end of 2023. So inflation remains high, the job market remains tight. So that, that's probably the main catalyst for why we might see continued interest rate hikes before the end of the year. So I think that'd be a main takeaway. If you listen to the testimony, if you were to listen to the testimony, there were more questions uh, asked beyond that uh, general assessment of economic conditions and monetary policy. There were a lot of questions about the effectiveness of higher interest rates on inflation, what the impact would be on the unemployment rate and layoffs. There were also questions about capital requirements at banks and the potential on uh, small business lending if capital requirements were increased. So I'd give that as a general assessment or a general recap of what we heard in the two-day testimony. Uh, one, one of the days was with the House Financial Services Committee and the second day was with the Senate Banking Committee. But that would be my general recap. All right. Um, and then moving along with the FTC and uh, with Amazon, which we're hearing has uh, come under criticism about uh, some of the, the practices with regards to um, Prime membership, being enrolled in Prime membership, and, um, and perhaps making it uh, a bit hard to get out of it, a bit hard to, to keep it from renewing. Um, can you tell us more about what this lawsuit is, is alleging and, and what it means, what it uh, could how it could implicate um, other subscription services. Sure. Um, the Federal Trade Commission filed a lawsuit against Amazon this week about its practices involving the Amazon Prime subscription service. And the lawsuit was filed in Seattle, Washington, where Amazon is headquartered. Um, many of your listeners or viewers may be familiar with Amazon Prime. I myself am not a member, but you know, looking at the statistics that were reported around this story, roughly 170 million subscribers belong to Amazon Prime. That's a huge number, particularly when you think of the U.S. population as being roughly 340 million people. Uh, but keep in mind, a lot of businesses, nonprofit organizations, and other entities besides people may be subscribers and have business organization accounts. So keep that in mind. But that's still a huge number. I feel almost uh, isolated or out of touch by not being a member of Amazon Prime. But uh, there's really two main complaints to this lawsuit uh, that uh, alleges uh, uh, unethical or um, illegal, really, behavior on the part of Amazon. And Amazon is uh, disputing this claim, obviously. But the first part would be the use of what are called dark patterns on the website, which would deceive or to use a, a term uh, used by the Federal Trade Commission dupe customers into joining Amazon Prime. So what dark patterns would be, would be the uh, interface or the layout of a website where you might see a bright colored button indicating to join Amazon Prime and you might see less obvious or less apparent uh, links to click on that might blend in in the background uh, that would be the option of not joining.
So it, it kind of traps or misleads people into joining and signing up for a subscription they may not really want. Um, I got to admit, I, I avoided it. 170 million subscribers belong to Amazon Prime. So uh, really the question is to what extent are people joining who really didn't want to join? Now, if you go to the Federal Trade Commission's website, they have the press release explaining their uh, lawsuit. And within the lawsuit, there's a link to the formal document that uh, would be part of their complaint. And you will see uh, screenshots and PDF files of actual examples of this use of dark patterns and what they would argue would be misleading or uh, practices that would dupe consumers into jo joining Amazon Prime when they really don't want to. Now, there's a second part of their complaint. So the first part is that these dark patterns or uh, web interfaces are misleading people into joining. The other part would be, as I'm sure many of your viewers might be familiar with, whether it's Amazon Prime or other uh, web subscription services, it might be difficult or relatively difficult. I'll stress the word relatively. It might be relatively difficult to uh, cancel your subscription uh, once you join. So it might be one or two easy clicks to join uh, such a subscription, but it might take a lot more to uh, cancel it, or it might not be obvious where one would go on a website to cancel their subscription. Um, in the press release and the document filing or indicating the complaint by the FTC, uh, the FTC stated that internally within Amazon, this uh, process for canceling a subscription to Amazon Prime would have been referred to as the Iliad referring to the long um, poems and the long book uh, written along with the Odyssey about ancient Rome. So it's saying it was a real book and a masterpiece to uh, uh, cancel the subscription to Amazon Prime. Now, that was allegedly in, in, the, in the document that the FTC posted, but uh, they're arguing that the process was unnecessary, complex, and complicated and difficult for consumers. Now, all of these allegations are being disputed. Uh, Amazon would say that they are working in accordance with the law. So those, those are things to keep in mind. Now, one interesting part of this story, uh, regardless of the outcome of this particular lawsuit, there could be implications on businesses, whether they're retailers or other businesses that have a subscription model to its pricing. So last week we talked about junk fees or quote-unquote junk fees, and how Ticketmaster and SeatGeek were voluntarily, due to public criticism and public outcries, uh, to post a, uh, an upfront price for consumers to see once they go and look at a web page where an events ticket would have a, a price listed, as opposed to having a lot of uh, surprise fees or fees jumping up when they're about to make their decision for a final purchase. So upfront pricing was something we talked about last week. That same consumer sentiment or consumer um, opinion might be driving in the future similar changes of practices of companies uh, who may be concerned with uh, the use of these dark patterns or complex procedures for canceling a subscription. So that might be one thing. You might get a change in public opinion or uh, you know, sentiment to see further changes and companies might change voluntarily, gradually, if that's the case. Also, like junk fees, you might also see more public policy action to take 
uh, action against these types of practices. So it might uh, be a catalyst for further public policy efforts, whether it's by the federal government or individual state governments. But it'll be interesting to see how this turns out. Again, Amazon Prime has roughly 170 million subscribers in the United States and roughly 200 million globally. So a lot of people interested in the outcome of this and a lot of people, whether they like the uh, practices of Amazon or not, it's something that I'm sure they'll pay attention to. All right. And so we're looking as well as at the results of a survey uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and this has to do with um, specifically how much work from home time was spent uh, within uh, the last year within a certain amount of, of time range there. Can you tell us more about what this, this measured, what it means, and uh, yeah, what the big takeaways are? So there's a lot of numbers in this report, but I'll just mention one that would be a real takeaway, 34%. So roughly 34% of workers, according to this survey, would be doing either part of their jobs from home or all of their jobs from home. So I think that's a good number to keep in mind. You hear a lot about working from home and the direction in which that practice is going. Uh, if we compare the current labor market to the pandemic months or the pandemic years, uh, you know, we, we would expect from the peak of the pandemic, perhaps it has gone down. This survey would shed light on how much. At the same time, we also hear about companies in this tight labor market that we mentioned earlier, companies might use the flexibility of working from home as a way of attracting potential workers to work for those particular companies. So whether it's avoiding long, lengthy commutes to work, whether it's being able to take care of children or older relatives from home, there could be some attractive nature to that. So, so to what extent is that growing in the economy? So, uh, and which of those two effects are, are outweighing the other? It would look like we're seeing some decline uh, compared to last year. We're seeing some decline in the uh, percentage of the labor force who are in fact doing working from home. So uh, about a year ago, in the year 2021, that number would have been 38%. It dropped four percentage points to 34%. So a slight decline overall when it comes to working from home. So a little bit lower, but that's still a significant share of the overall labor force. If our comparison would be pre-pandemic, that number would have been 24%. So we're up about 10 percentage points pre-pandemic. So it's a little bit down from last year, but it's still high compared to pre-pandemic levels. That would be one takeaway from this report. So working from home is a little bit less in terms of who's being affected, but it's still significant compared to the pre-pandemic years. Another takeaway from this report would be that there are significant differences across different categories of workers. So one interesting takeaway would be if we do a comparison of male and female workers, there was a much larger drop over the last year. And when I say the last year, I'm comparing the full year of 2021 to the full year of 2022. So the last full year of data that we have. If you look over that time period, there was a much larger drop in the percentage of men who were working from home, but there was a, a pretty flat uh, movement when we looked at the percentage of women. So we might expect that if women are more involved with child care or elder care, they might value that flexibility in their careers more than, again, relatively speaking, relative to men, that might be more valuable. So that might be some 
other takeaway we get from this report. Another takeaway is that the differences in working from home are rather large if you look at different categories of educational attainment. Over half, 54% of workers with a bachelor's degree or higher reported some working from home during 2022. So again, that's some or all of their work from home. Over 50% uh, would have reported that if they had a bachelor's degree or higher. For those who had a high school diploma and no college completed, that number would have been around 18%. So a very large difference when you look at educational attainment. So. Um, this, this uh, study, it's called the American Time Use Study. It's reported once a year by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They report a lot more things than just working from home. They'll report about working in the labor market for pay, working at home uh, for non-wage work, doing chores, child care, elder care, and leisure activities. So an interesting question we could ask on top of these basic uh, percentage composition numbers when it comes to working from home is what, what is actually being saved? So if you're saving time by working from home, uh, you're saving time because you're not doing a lengthy commute into the, the office, what are you doing? Are you spending more time on uh, chores? Are you spending more time on uh, wellness and leisure? Uh, that would be a next step study on, on what to do from there. But uh, overall, it looks like working from home is a significant phenomenon in the labor market, although we are slightly below the levels seen in 2021, but still above what we saw uh, pre-pandemic. All right, great stuff to break down there, uh, digging a little bit deeper here on Money Talks. Uh, David, is there anything in the weeks ahead that we're looking at? Anything that uh, folks need to know about uh, that economists are watching? Yeah. Uh, another eventful week will be next week when it comes to economic indicators and, and other reports that we get. Uh, we had uh, reports this week on existing home sales, which were fairly flat. And we also had numbers this week on new construction for private homes, which uh, rose considerably, uh, although it was a rather weak year overall. Uh, we'll get some more housing market data next week, particularly when it comes to housing prices with the Case-Shiller Index. And we'll also get sales of new homes, which is a smaller share of the housing market. Uh, also this week, we'll get some big earnings reports from uh, what I would consider bellwether companies. So again, if we're concerned with some weakening in the uh, GDP growth landscape, or we're looking at some weakening in the labor market, these might be some good indicators. For example, the uh, outsourcing HR uh, company Paychex will be reporting its quarterly earnings reports. Other big companies would include Nike, General Mills, and Walgreens. Those will be some uh, interesting ear to the street uh, reports that we get on how the overall economy and landscape is, are, are doing. Uh, also next week we'll get updated inflation data. Uh, the Federal Reserve's favorite target, the Core Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, uh, will come out. It's been around 4% in recent reports on a 12-month basis. Uh, so we'll see to what extent uh, do we see continued moderation in that number. So busy week ahead and some important indicators when we ask how the uh, economy is going to be doing in the uh, second half of the year. All right, great stuff. David Yaskevich with Southeast Missouri State's uh, Department of Accounting, Economics, and Finance. He is the chair there. Um, David, thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you. As always, the pleasure was mine. All right, Money Talks is our program on KFES Digital. You can 
Well, watch this over Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, all those great locations on the website and app as well. If you don't have the KFBS News app, check it out. And you can watch your newscasts and uh, all your video on demand there. Um, thanks again, folks. We will turn it back over uh, to local news live here for the next few minutes before the 6 o'clock news. Stick around. Uh, Jeff Cunningham has your latest news coming up in just a few minutes.